if you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn to Micah, the Old Testament prophet Micah in the Old Testament. Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, we're going to look at the first eight verses of this chapter as we conclude this series on spiritual disciplines. We're looking at the spiritual discipline of, of justice and mercy. And this passage brings both of those words together in a way that I think is familiar and yet perhaps not as familiar as it ought to be. Before we read God's word together, though, let's, let's pray together. Father, once again, we come to the end of this Lord's Day, and we desire to hear the word of the Lord. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come, that you would open our eyes of faith, that we would see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. Grant us grace, Lord, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Micah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise. Plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim from, to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as I mentioned, we're, we're concluding this series on spiritual disciplines, and there was a, a particular logic to the way these topics were arranged. After the introduction that we had in, in the third Sunday of August, we, we began with corporate worship and things that are connected to corporate worship, things like singing and, and Sabbath rest. And then we began to move towards disciplines that are more familiar to us, Things like reading the Bible and meditation, prayer and fasting. And then we began to talk about things that are perhaps more oriented towards our community. Topics like stewardship and generosity, service hospitality, community and life within the community. But then last week when Andrew Ginn spoke, we began to move out towards the world to issues of witness and evangelism. And tonight to justice and mercy. It's hard sometimes for us to hear uh, about this biblical theme of justice and mercy. I'll, I'll never forget 
uh, one time preaching my way through a particular section of the Bible uh, and, and preached on a passage that used the word justice. Uh, the very next day, that would be Monday morning, not the best time to come and talk to the preacher. Uh, I had someone in my office who was quite upset about the sermon. He, he said, you seem to preach about justice a lot. I actually said, well, no, I actually don't. It just happened to be the next text and what we were doing. And he said, well, couldn't you have just kind of skipped over it? I said, wait a second. Did, did you just tell me to skip over something in the Bible? That He said, yeah, that didn't sound very good, did it? I said, no, it didn't really. He said, but, but justice is just such a, a convoluted word nowadays. There's all sorts of disagreement. Why bring it up? To which I would say, and I would say to you tonight, that's the exact reason that we do need to talk about it. Because the Bible has a lot to say about justice and justice in connection with mercy. And particularly in this passage, like other places, Isaiah 1, Isaiah 58, elsewhere in the prophets, the, the, the prophets will make a connection between worship on the one side and justice on the other. God's people think that God really wants worship, and he certainly wants our worship. But what God says to his people over and again is that what he really wants is for us to live lives of justice, Justice motivated by the mercy, by the chesed, the steadfast love of God. That's what this passage teaches us, I think clearly, is that, that God's way for his redeemed people is the way of justice and mercy. That's what God wants from us. But in order for us to see this, and in order for his people here in Micah to see this, God calls heaven and earth to assemble. To assemble. Now, one of the cool moments from the summative 2019 uh, movie Avengers Endgame is after the original six Marvel heroes get beaten all around by the super bad guy Thanos. It all looks helpless as Thanos moves all of the forces of evil forward. And at that moment, various portals open up, and all of the heroes from all of the Marvel movies to this point come onto the field. Black Panther, Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, the Guardians of the Galaxy, countless others. And, and Captain America, renewed by this support, he says, Avengers, assemble. Here in Micah 6, there's only one hero. It's God himself. But he does call the mountains and hills to assemble. That's what's going on in verse 2. He says, Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend against Israel. Why have the mountains and the hills and the earth's foundations assembled? Well, to serve as witnesses to a courtroom scene. A courtroom scene that's about to unfold before them. As one commentator put it, the mountains and hills have gazed on as silent observers since time immemorial on all that has transpired in Yahweh's relationship with Israel so that the veracity of what follows is sure. In fact, back in Deuteronomy, 
as God is making his covenant with Israel through Moses, the mediator. Three times as his formal covenant is being established, God declares, I call heaven and earth to witness. And from that point on, the mountains and the hills and the foundations of the earth have witnessed. And so God calls them to assemble, to hear his indictment, to hear his case, to hear his appeals. But what's striking about God's appeal is that he doesn't catalog all of Israel and Judah's sins, which have been set forth by the prophet Micah in the previous five chapters of this book. Rather, God appeals by first noting his relationship with his people. Twice in verse 3 and in verse 5, he says, Oh, my people. Oh, my people. These are his people. And there's, there's pathos in this appeal. As God says, oh, my people. Oh, my people. He still cares for them. He still cares for their, his relationship with them, despite their waywardness. And then secondly, he asks them in verse 3, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? The word wearied here in verse 3 that has the idea of being worn out or exhausted or even exasperated. Yahweh wants to know how has he worn his people out? How has he exhausted them? How has he proven to be a burden or a drag to them? And God goes on to remind Israel of, of five different events that demonstrated his steadfast love for them, that he only wanted their good, only act according to their benefit. And by implication, God's saying to his people, asking them, have these five things proven to be a burden? Have, God, have you, my people, have you become bored with redemption? The five events are listed in verses four and five. First, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. Second, I've redeemed you from the house of slavery. Third, I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Fourth, I delivered you from Balak and Balaam. And finally, I brought you into the promised land, extended from Shittim to Gilgal. God redeemed his people. He had given them a full-orbed leadership of prophets, priests, and kings, delivered them from his enemy, their enemies, brought them all the way to the promised land. And so why were they exhausted with God? Why were they so worn out, so burdened, so bored? What was Israel's response? What was Israel's appeal? Well, basically their appeal is that God requires too much out of us. His worship is too onerous. His obedience too burdensome. This way of life too demanding. Yes, they say in essence, we're exhausted, God, because you demand too much from us. But notice in, in verses 6 and 7, Israel thinks that what God really wants from them is worship. Costly, extravagant worship. And particularly, if we do the right things in worship, then God will get what he wants, and by implication, he'll get off our backs. Everything will be fine. And so the first part of verse 6, you have this question with what shall I come before the Lord? With what shall I bow myself before God on high? What will satisfy him? What will pay him back? What will get me off the hook? 
The first question is, does God want costly worship? The proper burnt offering? Well, well, that's not unusual. That's not unexpected. Does God want a year-old calf? Well, that's a little bit more expensive. To, to invest and to raise a calf for an entire year to fatten them up just for sacrifice, does God want costly worship? Does God want extravagant worship? Will that please him? Like, like Solomon at the temple dedication, thousands of rams or ten thousands of rivers of oil. This is wild excess, far beyond what the law required or what, what we could possibly imagine. Or does God want painfully sacrificial worship? Does he want the offer of my firstborn son? Ahaz passed his son through the fire. Is that what God requires? Is that what will satisfy God? We should pause just to notice that, that the five events that God pointed to, marking his redemption and his steadfast love for his people, is met in Israel's appeal with five ways to pay God back, as if they could. But God's people didn't understand at all. God set his love upon his people, not because they were great, but despite the fact they were rebels who would disappoint him over and over and over again. No, God loved his people because he loved them. He didn't desire to burden them or to exhaust them or weary them or to bore them. No, far from it. Well, what did God want? What was the proper response to God's gracious, steadfast, always and forever, one-way kind of love? Well, God had already apprised his people over and again in his word what, what is good and what he requires. But in his grace, he apprises them again. That's verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Does God want us to worship him? Yes. But God does not want us to worship him if we are failing to do justice, failing to love kindness, failing to walk humbly with him. You see, according to Micah, and indeed the rest of the story of the Bible, justice and mercy are not nice extras to the Christian life. They are the Christian life. They are the proper good response to God's redemptive love shown to us in Jesus Christ. So what does the practice of justice entail here in Micah and elsewhere in Scripture? Well, justice entails dealing with others in a way that accords with God's will, as it laid out in his law, particularly protecting them from exploitation and mistreatment and giving them their proper due, which is made to those who are in God's image. Justice entails dealing with others in a way that accords with God's will, as laid out in God's law, protecting them from exploitation and mistreatment and giving them their proper due as those made in God's law. Already in Micah's prophecy, he's arraigned Israel's injustice, the forcible confiscation of others' property and possessions in chapter 2, the inhumane treatment of others in chapter 3, the cheating others so that one's own financial position is strengthened, also chapter 3, 
Elsewhere in the Old Testament, justice involved protection of the poor, the orphan, the widow, the sojourner, the the so-called quartet of the vulnerable who are liable to exploitation and abuse. And so when God calls us as his people to respond to his grace, what he he calls us to is to, to do this kind of justice, to deal with others in a way that accords with God's will by protecting them as well as giving them their due. But what is the loving of mercy, the loving of kindness? The Hebrew word here is chesed, which is often translated steadfast love. What what does that entail here? Well, to love steadfast love and mercy means that we will do justice out of a faithful loving care for others, to cherish them as God's own creation, as either wayward sons and daughters or those who have been welcomed by the king. In other words, as those who know God's steadfast love, as know his chesed, we demonstrate that same steadfast love as we do justice. We don't deserve God's love. He loved us because he loved us. It very well may be that that those with whom we engage don't deserve our love either, yet we love them because we love them, because... God loves them. Yet as those who've been shown steadfast love and mercy, we must love mercy by doing justice. And surely this requires us to walk humbly, to walk carefully with our God, to demonstrate our love for God as we act, as we act to love his own people. And surely what God's calling Israel here to, what God's calling you and me to, is to act. In 2021, our session adopted a series of affirmations and denials, one of which was on the topic of justice. And in it, we said, we affirm as Christians that we are to act justly and to love mercy. We recognize justice as an essential element of our witness to Christ requires our conduct to be just, both in public, hence social, and in private. So in other words, as a church, through our session, we've committed ourselves to the practice of justice and mercy in line with God's word. Certainly, that will involve private transactions, but also public ones, hence social ones. Hence, there is such a thing as, according to scripture, as social justice. But it's defined by God's word, defined by God's will, defined by God's law. What does that look like? How do we act justly? How do we act with mercy? In what sphere does this spiritual discipline operate? Well, this is one of those places where we don't have to make things up. Our own larger catechism And its exposition of the Ten Commandments gives us a clear picture of how to act justly in our various spheres. Remember, justice is dealing with others in accordance with God's will as laid out in his law. And so the Ten Commandments, as the summary of God's moral law, gives us a clear picture of what acting justly looks like. So I would commend to you the entire section from the larger catechism on the Ten Commandments, but, but this evening I simply want to focus on the way that the commandment, or excuse me, the way the catechism talks about the fifth commandment. 
In Larger Catechism 126, we've learned that the general scope of the fifth commandment is the performance of those duties which we mutually owe in our several relations as inferiors, superiors, and equals. Now, that language, inferiors, superiors, and equals, that sounds a little strange to us. It, It pictures a hierarchical world that doesn't fit easily with our more egalitarian age. But, but let's think about it this way. What does justice look like for children with their parents? Or employees with their supervisors? Or church members with their elders? Well, that's larger catechism 127 and 128. So the honor which inferiors owe to their superiors is all due reverence in heart, word, behavior, prayer and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues and graces, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, fidelity to, defense of, and maintenance of their persons and authority according to their several ranks and the nature of their places, bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love so that they may be an honor to them and to their government. Likewise, the sins of inferiors against superiors are all neglect of the duties required toward them, envying at, contempt of, and rebellion against their persons and places, and their lawful counsels, commands, and corrections, cursing, mocking, and all such refractory and scandalous carriage as proves of shame and dishonor to them and their government. Let's turn it around. What practices of justice should parents extend to children or supervisors to employees or or elders with church members? Well, that's, that's larger catechism 129 and 130. It's required of superiors according to that power they've received from God and that relation wherein they stand to love, pray for, bless their inferiors, to instruct, counsel, and admonish them, countenance, commend, and reward them, uh, such as doing well, and discountenancing, reproving, and chastising, such as do ill, protecting and providing for them on all things necessary for soul and body, and by grave, wise, holy, and exemplary carriage, to procure glory to God, honor to themselves, and so preserve that authority which God had put on them. Likewise, what are the sins? Well, the, the sins of superiors are, beside the neglect of the duty required of them, and the ordinate and, and inordinate seeking of themselves, their own glory, ease, profit, or pleasure, commanding things unlawful or not in the power of inferiors to perform, counseling, encouraging, or favoring them in what is evil, dissuading, discouraging, discountenancing them in that which is good, correcting them unduly, carelessly exposing or leaving them to wrong, temptation, or danger, provoking them to wrath, or in any way dishonoring themselves or lessening their authority by an unjust, indiscreet, rigorous, or remiss behavior. One last bit. What about our relationships with our spouses or our friends or our neighbors or, or those whom we've never yet met? Someone we might encounter in the community. Oh, well, that's, that's larger catechism 131 and 132. The duties of equals are to regard the dignity and worth of each other and giving honor to go before another and to rejoice in each other's gifts and advancement as their own. And the sins of equals are, beside the neglect of duties required, the undervaluing of the worth, envying the gifts, grieving at the advancement of prosperity one of another, and usurping preeminence one over another. Of course, the the fifth commandment alone doesn't tell us everything about the practice of justice. 
The sixth through the 10th commandments do as well. But here's my point. We, we tend to think that, that justice, the practice of justice and mercy, involves large structural and societal things. And of course, it does. Justice does involve structural justice, systemic justice. It does. But practices of justice and mercy start in our daily relationships. If we're unjust to our spouses or unjust to our children, unjust to our pastors and elders at church, unjust to our bosses or coworkers, we will certainly demonstrate injustice to people we've never met, to people who are different from us, who don't live near us or, or who aren't like us. The, these practices laid out in the Ten Commandments and explained so well in our larger catechism, they are essential elements of our witness as Christians. This is what is good. This is what the Lord requires of us. But here's the thing. We always falter and fail in our practice of justice. We, we fail all the time to do justice. And that's where an echo in this text, I think, gives us hope. Because the only way possible for us to do justice is to be just, to be just on the inside. And the only way it's possible for us to be just, to be the way we ought to be, was not for us to offer our firstborn for the sins of our souls. No, that would do no good, would it? That to offer the fruit of our bodies for the sins of our souls? No, our children are just in need of redemption as we are. They're just as unjust as we are. No, the only way, the only hope we have to become just is for God to offer his firstborn, not for, for his sins, but for ours. But God so loved you and me that he did give his one and only son. He gave his firstborn that we might not perish, but have everlasting life, that we might be made God's righteousness we might become God's justice, that we might become the way we ought to be. We've been shown mercy to show mercy. We're declared and made just to do justice. That's what mercy this is, what grace this is, that God is just and the justifier and moves us into the world to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we do ask that you would remind us over and again of that which is good, of what you've actually required of us as your people to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. Lord, we do pray that you would remind us too that we falter and fail all the time. That's why this table is set before us, to remind us that God so loved us, each of us, not just us collectively, but us individually. God so loved us that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so, Lord, as those who are regularly unjust, Lord, cleanse us yet again. Declare us to be right with you, just in your sight. And, and equip us yet again for these spiritual practices we've learned about this semester, but especially the practice of justice and mercy. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.